Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today is study number two of Psalm 9. And we're going to be reading verses 2 through 5. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne, judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name for ever and ever. And I'll stop reading there. Now, um, in this study, we're going to pick up in verse 2, um, which says, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. And when we look up these two words, uh, as they're used together in some places, we find that it, it ties in with salvation. For instance, in Psalm 14, it says in verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when Jehovah bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. So this helps us to understand that when God speaks of bringing back the captivity, or returning the captivity, or the captives returning from Babylon, it has to do with salvation. And uh, since it relates to salvation, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Also, in Psalm 40, it says in verse um, 16, Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, Jehovah, be magnified. And and so here in our psalm, in Psalm uh, 9, verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. It, It is, of course, the child of God, the one that God has saved, that rejoices in God, that uh is glad in him as a result of the salvation God has given to him. It goes on to say in verse 2, I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. And and of course it is also the true believer that praises God. Do the wicked praise God? No. It's, It's the one that God has saved that lifts up his name that um, exalts the name of God and recognizes God is most high. And, uh, you know, this this reference to God, this, uh, this phrase, O most high, O thou most high, uh, is uh, something that really gives uh, honor to God and, and glory to him. It is a recognition that God is highest of of all. He he's highest 
of those that are called God, but not actually God. He's highest um, over the kingdoms of the world. And most high in uh, the Hebrew, the Strong's word is 5945, means highest. It just means that which is the most high. And this has been a name for God for uh, a long time. If we go back to Genesis chapter 14, in the days of Abraham, or Abram at that point, it says in Genesis 14, and beginning in verse um, 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto Jehovah, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. So um, several times there, God is called the most high God. And so there's no doubt, Jehovah, the most high God. And course at that time uh, which was over 2,000 years before Christ's birth over 4,000 years from our present time God was most high God and um, the only God so of course he's the most high in Psalm 7 in Psalm 7 and the last verse verse 17 it says I will praise Jehovah according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of Jehovah Most High. In Psalm 8, and or, or excuse me, Psalm 18, and verse 13, Jehovah also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice hailstones and coals of fire. There the word highest is the translation of most high or or the same Hebrew word that's translated as most high and and that's exactly what it means he is the highest God is the highest God is above and there is none above him he is the highest power Uh, you know in the 12 step programs of AA or or um, narcotics anonymous and, and these kinds of groups they speak of a higher power. And, and, and that's, that's appropriate. That's fine. Because it's God. The, he is the highest power. The highest authority. The highest good. He is the highest. The most high God. And likewise, His Word, the Bible, also is the highest. It is, um, therefore, the supreme authority. It is the law 
of God. The Bible is God's Word. It is His law book. And it declares the supreme law. God's law is the final authority in all that it says. And and this is why uh, if God's law, the Most High God, speaks and gives the Most High law that uh, and and uh, on whatever point it touches on whatever subject it speaks of for example if the most high law says women are not to teach then women are not to teach and if the most high law the supreme law of of god uh, says marriage uh, is for uh, for duration of uh, people's lives, and there's not to be divorce, then marriage is for the duration of life uh, until uh, one partner or the other die, and there's not to be divorce. And if the most high law of God says marriage is between a man and a woman only, not a man and another man or a woman and a woman, then the the law is. It is set. It is established. It cannot be changed or altered. The law is that that is uh, who qualifies for marriage. And it cannot be any other way. God's word is the supreme court of law. He is the highest judge. There is no appeal to a higher court or a higher authority that is possible. The Bible has the final say. And and when the Bible says something, and then the, the world or the nations of the world or man says something differently, says something uh, contrarily, to what the highest law declares, which is the Bible, then there there is no contest, there is no dispute, there is no doubt that God's law is supreme. And the people of God honor the law of God, the Bible, above whatever law man has developed that is in... Uh, opposition to the Word of God, the Bible, because God is Most High. His Word is Most High. If the Supreme Court of the United States or any country, the, the highest court of the land, which serves its purpose, and, and God has raised up these judges and courts, and, and, and they, um, do well, and if they maintain law within the land that is in accord with the law of God. But the moment that a government, and God tells believers, he tells his people that um, that he has raised up governments, that they are to submit to the law of government, but the moment, the, the instant, that a government declares a law that is against the law of God, 
the people of God are not to obey. For instance, if a government says that you must abort your child because this is our law, we we want uh, our populations growing too big, and and therefore we must limit the number of children, and 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 so you're allowed to have one or two, but no more. And if you have another child, you must abort it. Well, the child of God says, I'm sorry. I have respect for you as government. I have respect for all your laws. But I, in this instance, I must disobey. Or if the government um, tells the child of God to do anything contrary to the law of God. We must bow and submit to the highest authority on that point then and say we cannot do that because God's word is supreme and God's word is to be obeyed. Now, it, we, we read in Psalm 83, in Psalm 83 and verse 18, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. God is, again, the supreme authority, the Bible. Not any other religion, not any other writings of men, but the Bible alone. Only the Bible has this exalted place as far as law is concerned, because God is most high. It is God that sits upon the throne. It is God that rules over the earth. And especially today, as he is Lord of lords and King of kings, as he has put down the rebellion of Satan and deposed him from any official rule or authority, God is the most high and and Satan uh, desired to be like God. Remember, uh, we we read in Isaiah 14 and uh, in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne, Above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That, that, that has been Satan's desire, to be like the Most High. He wants that authority. He wants that uh, that lofty place of rule and honor and glory that that alone belongs to God and alone belongs to the Word of God. Oh, but if Satan could enter into the congregations as he did, and if his word, his lies, were uh, esteemed and and believed and followed, then. Oh, he could puff out his chest and he could be like the Most High God because his word was being followed 
over and above the word of God, which is truly most high. And, and you can see why doctrine is extremely important to Satan and, of course, to God, and it ought to be to us. Doctrine is extremely important because it comes forth from the Most High God and is to be followed and and submitted to and recognized as the supreme and final authority in all matters that it declares because it's the Bible. And uh, this is why God's people do not give an inch. We do not compromise on any point of doctrine. We do not say, well, you know, um, they're with us 90% of the way, so let's just overlook the other 10% that we differ on, as as some have put forth and as they've tried to unify the church. And, and let's just uh, come together on the points we agree on and overlook the rest. No, God's people stand fast and maintain the truth of the word of God on every point. And, uh, you know, th- this is one of the deceitful ways that Satan works, that the enemy works against God. They'll come in and they'll agree with you 90, 95%, 98%, 99% even. But then... There'll be one point, just one little point, just, it, you know, there's a saying about the edge of the wedge. You just get your edge of your wedge into a little crack. Just get it into a little crack if you can get that one point established. And so what's the big deal? Where's the harm? And then comes the hammer blow to the wedge and it cracks the whole thing apart. And and that is how Satan operates and works. He just wants one little point uh, for you to give up on or to allow. And and sometimes we we have that tendency. Well, you know, we've talked to this guy about this truth and this truth and this truth, and we've corrected him and corrected him. And and maybe we'll allow him this one, even though he's off on the... No, no, not on the any minor point. Not a jot, not a tittle. The word of God is supreme in all that it declares. It's to be upheld by God and, and by the people of God. We're to submit to it completely and not allow any error to creep in. Or for us to um, to submit to any kind of error. All right, let's go back to Psalm nine, Psalm nine, and verse three goes on to say, "When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence." These are the enemies of Christ, the enemies of His kingdom. And therefore, the enemies of the people of God, and and, and uh, here the statement is made: when and when is a time reference. Mine enemies are turned back. Now, the the word, the Hebrew word translated as "turn back," is an extremely common word. 
It's um, in the Old Testament, it's Strong's number 7725. And the list of English words that are translated as is is just numerous. You, you, I, you couldn't even begin to name all the English words, but it is often translated as turn back or turned. A little later in the same chapter, in verse 17, it says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. And that's the same word. So we could read that, the wicked shall be turned back into hell. But the idea is that when God says his enemies are turned back, and then later they're turned back into hell, it's really um, speaking of the same thing. They're under his wrath. They're uh, placed in a condition of hell in the day of judgment. And uh, it it relates to the wrath of God being poured out upon them. Now, the word uh, fall, as it goes on to say, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. We find the word fall in Jeremiah 50, in the uh, chapter that God is describing the fall of Babylon, but that's not the word. Uh, that's translated Babylon as fallen as fallen. That's a different word. But in Jeremiah 50, it says in verses 31 and 32, Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud. And that's referring to Babylon or Satan and his kingdom. And Satan is most proud because he wants to be like the most high God. And pride is that which lifts up and exalts. That's what man wants to do. Satan wants to be like God, and so does man. And because man does not, um, in his fallen condition, properly understand his rightful place in the, the order of things, as God created him as a creature to honor the Creator, to submit to the Creator, but man doesn't want to do that. He thinks he's he, he's uh, above all that. He he thinks he is God, and that he should be the the determiner of things, and he should determine the course of his own life, the things he wants to do, and and that's exactly what man does. Well, uh, I don't I don't want to serve God. I don't want to know about the Bible. I don't want to study the scriptures or pray and ask God for guidance or wisdom. I don't want to go in that direction. I want to go in the direction of the world. I want to go to college and get a career and make a lot of money. And and I want to buy things and get things. And, and that's how I want to live my life. Well, it it's all out of pride. It's all out of arrogance. It's all out of being their own little God that that thinks that they are the ones that make the decisions. But that's not how it is with the one that God has saved and delivered and translated out of darkness and all living like that in our pride is being in darkness. And when God takes us out of the darkness, 
translates us into the kingdom of his dear son, well, now it's different. Now we recognize that we've been bought with a price. We are not our own. We have been restored. Our soul has been restored to its proper uh, condition. And we have a desire to do the will of God. And so we seek God in prayer. Oh, oh, Father, help me to do your will today. Help me to keep your commandments, to show forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Guide me. What should I do? How should I do it? In my home, with my family, with my neighbors, in my job. Constant prayer, constant requests of God for guidance and direction. Lead us step by step. A completely different mindset, not one of pride and arrogance and and thinking, well, I'm the one who makes the decisions, but we look to God. We look to his word for direction, and and that's how it is. But here, Babylon is Satan and, and the kingdom of the unsaved, and God says in Jeremiah 50, verse 31, Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord Jehovah of hosts, for thy day is come the time that I will visit thee, and the most proud shall stumble and fall, and none shall raise him up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and shall devour all round about him. And 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 so that's what God is saying in our psalm, that the unsaved, they uh, are turned back, they shall fall. It, it, It is... At the time that God has kindled a fire, that they're they're experiencing uh, His fierce anger for their sins, and God says it, it's an occasion to fall to the wicked people of the world. Not only does He say they shall fall, but also perish at Thy presence. Now, this this word is very common also um, in the Old Testament. And we find that it's often related to annihilation. Uh, let's let's look at several places where the the word um, for perish is used, and it's Strong's number six uh, in the concordance. Um, let's start in Job, Job chapter four, beginning in verse seven and through nine. Remember, I pray thee. Whoever perished, being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? And this is the truth. Whoever perished because they were innocent. You know, um, a lot of people like to critique God's salvation program. Oh, it's not fair. It's not just. It's not right that that God saved uh, only certain ones. And he didn't save everyone. Or it's not right that that God uh, has ended his salvation program. And people are still on the earth. Well, well, who is man to make these kinds of charges against God? And whoever perished being innocent. And of course, no one has ever perished being innocent. Because we're all guilty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
and everyone that perishes, it's not because uh, of God, it's because of their own sin, their own guilt, their own shame, their their own transgressing of the law of God. And, and they, through their own sin, each man, each person, has brought down upon them the, the wrath of God that destroys them. That's what's going on today. If uh, someone is born or uh, people that are in the church and, and at the time when God has shut the door of heaven on the world, well, will they perish? Yes. Is it, is it unfair? No, because they're not innocent. They're not innocent at all. They're guilty. And, and the wages of sin is death. And God is bringing the just judgment, the righteous judgment of God, which is death. And he brought death spiritually once he shut the door of heaven on May 21, 2011. And it continues this time of death until the final day. And then God will completely destroy the sinner forevermore. And that will be the last uh, aspect of the death. The spiritual death will turn into a literal physical destruction. And that is annihilation. Now it goes on to say here in Job 4, in verse 8, Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. And then uh, in the same chapter, beginning in verse 19, How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. So here again we see the statement is made, they perish forever. And and that's an eternal destruction. It's an eternal judgment of God upon the sinner for his sins. We read also in the book of Job in chapter 20, beginning in verse 4, Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment, though his excellency mount up to the heavens, and his head reach unto the clouds, yet he shall perish for ever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, where is he? Because he's gone. He he is annihilated. And um, they which have seen him are God's elect. We, we've lived amongst them, with them, in our own houses, uh, sometimes in our neighborhoods, certainly. And they've been a part of everything uh, in this world. You, you just can't. Uh, have anything in this world without the wicked involved in one way or another since the fall of mankind into sin. But they which see them 
comes that day and, and they will ask the question, well, where is he? Well, of course, since our remembrance will be uh, gone, uh, God is just using this as a figure of speech. It's as though that question would be asked by, by the elect because they're completely gone. They have been destroyed with the world, with the universe, with the corrupt creation, and, and they are gone forevermore. In Psalm 37, Psalm 37, we went through this Psalm a while back and we saw that it had much to say about, uh, the end and, and God was, um, continually contrasting the end of the wicked with you you can't say the end of the righteous but what will happen to them with the righteous is they will receive their reward they will live forever but concerning the wicked psalm 37 verse 20 but the wicked shall perish and the enemies of jehovah shall be as the fat of lambs they shall consume into smoke shall they consume away and there it's very significant language the wicked shall perish and then God gives an image or an illustration of how they're going to perish they will be as the fat of lambs and of course the fat of lambs directs our attention to a sacrifice the the sacrificial animal that will be burned on the altar and and God likens Judgment Day to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which in the Old Testament he calls the sacrifice. And it is the sacrifice or the offering up of the wicked in the Day of Judgment as they themselves pay for their own sins that they have committed. And just as Christ was sacrificed for the sins of his people and he died for those sins uh, and and thereby freeing his elect people so that they themselves would not have to experience destruction in their own paying for their sin and and that's how they could live because man cannot endure the wrath of God man cannot come back from the wrath of God only Christ, man and God, could do that. But for the wicked, when they perish, when at this time, as as they are presently being offered up as the sacrifice for their own sin, and they are making payment to God to satisfy the law's demands, again, the wages of sin is death, they must die. That is the sacrifice the law demands for sin. And the law will finally burn them up with that literal uh, fire in which the elements shall melt and, and all the wicked likewise will burn and melt away as the fat of lambs they shall consume. That's what fire does. It consumes that which it burns, and into smoke they shall consume away. So 
what is um, the the substance of the wicked is burned up, and then like smoke, it it just um, elevates and goes into the sky and into the air and dissipates and is gone. That's the illustration that God is using. He uses um, similar language in Psalm 68. Psalm 68 in the first couple of verses says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. And there again, is a vivid image of wax melting, and we've we've all seen how wax melts at fire. Well, so too the wicked will perish at the presence of God. And uh, again, there is the spiritual burning followed by the actual physical burning that will, uh, at that point, completely... Uh, annihilate the wicked and they they will be no more um, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and in Ecclesiastes 3 God lays down the biblical principle that to everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven God does not do things um, randomly haphazardly uh, you know, where events are just kind of allowed to happen as they happen. Things are thrown together together with, without any sort of order. No, God is a God of order, of precision, of exactness. We see that in the creation, and we see it in his overall program for this world, the salvation program, and his program for judgment, the times and the seasons where Christ came at a specific time to enter into the world. He went to the cross at the uh, exact day that he needed to go to the cross in order to fulfill the spiritual meaning of the Passover feast. The Holy Spirit was not just poured out any old time, but when the day of Pentecost was fully come, then the Holy Spirit was poured out and the official beginning of the church age took place. And, of course, the time of the church age, very definite. 1955 years, then the end of the church age, beginning of the Great Tribulation. And we see the precision of the the end time um timeline uh, beginning with uh, the end of the church age the day before Pentecost in 1988 the 2300 evening mornings as it concluded on September 7th and 94 which happened to be the first day of the Hebrew seventh month and that would be the month signaling a jubilee year and it was a jubilee year as God began the pouring out of the latter rain and so forth. And, of course, God locked in May 21, 2011, as the end of the Great Tribulation, not 8,455 days, but 8,400 days 
um, exactly a tw- even 23 years of great tribulation. And then Judgment Day began, which is an official part of God's overall program. And we see a, a neat reference or a neat number of 1600 days in Revelation 14 that uh, is given in the context of Judgment Day. And, it, and, and again, as we search out the 1600 days, as, as it's given in the context of Judgment Day in the form of harvest in Revelation 14, we find 1600 days from May 21, 2011 is the last day of the Feast of Harvest. And also then we see the October 7th, 2015, that 1600th day together with the 8400 days is 10,000 days of overall judgment since judgment began on the house of God back in May 21, 1988. Very precise, very um, everything in its place, uh, um, nothing uh, out of order. It, it, it really fits very, very well. And that's because that God has times and seasons, times and seasons. And uh, he has arranged things so that the day of salvation would have its time and the day of judgment its own time and season. And that's why we read in Ecclesiastes 3 that, uh, for instance, in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, which would relate to, uh, well, we could also say a time to be born would relate to uh, the time of the day of salvation to be born again. A time to die would be judgment day, the the, the season in which man dies. A time to plant, sowing seed in the day of salvation and a time to pluck up that which is planted, they, the reaping, which God says takes place at the time of the end. And a time to kill, God kills in the day of judgment, and a time to heal, the, the, the sin-sick soul in the day of salvation. A, a time to break down the house that is built upon the sand, and a time to build up the spiritual house of God, which again would be in the day of salvation and the day of judgment. So we see how these references relate to the day of salvation, day of judgment. A time to weep. Remember, we we go forth bearing precious seed, sowing the gospel with tears, and a time to laugh. This is when God laughs at the calamity of the wicked. And and God said that they that weep will laugh. We weep in the day of salvation. It's as though we're laughing in the day of judgment. Now, some of these other ones are harder to provide that spiritual definition. But let, let's go down to verse 6. A time to get. And that word get is translated as seek. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And God could be found 
in the day of salvation. That is the time that God uh, made available to the people of the world that that they could be saved potentially from their perspective. And, and of course, God would save his people, his elect. But God made time to seek. And, and that would have ended on May 21, 2011. A, a time to seek or a time to get and a time to lose. And the Hebrew word translated as lose is perish. This is the word from our psalm in Psalm 9. They shall fall and perish at thy presence. There is a time to perish. And and this would be the day of judgment. The, the present time we are now living in is um, a time that God has set aside for plucking up for killing, for breaking down, uh, for laughing, and for perishing. It is, it is the time that God is punishing the world, punishing the unsaved inhabitants of the earth for the sins that they have committed against Him. And, and uh, so this is the time that the enemies of God are falling and perishing at His presence. Okay, let's uh, just go back to Psalm 9, and we're running out of time, but we'll look uh, at the next verse. In verse 4, For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou saddest in the throne, judging right. And... Here, um, this again, it's Christ speaking. It is His right and His cause, but it's also the right and cause of the people of Christ, of the body of believers. And we find some other scriptures that that uh, relate to this. One is found in Psalm 140. Psalm 140. And verse 12. I know that Jehovah will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Cause of the afflicted and right of the poor. Is, and our verse says again, Thou hast maintained my right and my cause. And, and so Jehovah does maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Now, in um, Proverbs 29 and verse 7, it says the righteous, and, and that would be Christ, he is the righteous one, the righteous considereth the cause of the poor, but the wicked regardeth not to know it. Now, what is the cause of the poor that the righteous, Christ, considers? Well, it is our poverty it, it, and remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it, it is the gospel that there is a need, first of all, to save his people, and at this time, there is a, um, a need to feed his people, and as far as the wicked, well, they don't consider either one. 
when it was the time to save, well, the the wicked just didn't see the point of, uh, say, going overseas on a track trip and handing out the word of God, tracks to people. Well, come on, people are starving. People are impoverished. They need clothing. They need education. They The world sees the physical need and does not understand the spiritual need. Same thing today. What are you talking about? You're going on track trips to feed sheep and you're, you're going with the word of God in order that they might hear and, and there might be some spiritual nourishment. And again, why don't you take care of their real needs according to the world, which is they need food, they need clothing, they need housing and, and so on. Use your money, um, for, for something uh, of value, they think, because they devalue the whole idea of the spiritual realm, of of salvation, which takes place in a spiritual realm, or of feeding sheep that takes place in the spiritual realm. They see no purpose, it's foolishness to them, and and so the wicked does not regard the cause of the poor. But Christ does, and of course, the reality is that the real vanity or or uh, empty thing would be to go and to give them something physical to eat. Uh, and we did see poor people in South Africa, and you see them in India, and you see them all over the earth, and they come up to you and they want some money or they want some food, physical food, and and here we have the Word of God in track form. And the the uh, earthly tendency is to think, well, we need to take care of their physical need. Well, the, the world will do that. It, it, the world has a good number of people that are very interested in that because God has also sparked their interest in that way. And, and God uh, does use the people of the world too maintain physical needs but who's going to care for their spiritual need the world will not they will not help even if they could and they can't because they don't understand spiritual things but even if it were possible that they would help they will not help uh, because they they do not regard such things and that's why the child of God must stay focused on the spiritual needs of people. And again, according to the Bible, it's no longer salvation. That was our concern in its proper season of the day of salvation when it was a time to seek. Now it's a time to perish and God gives us our direction, he gives us our command, feed my sheep. And that is the spiritual concern of the child of God, of the believer. Let, let's, while we're in Proverbs, let's just look at Proverbs 31. And beginning in verse 5, it says, Lest they drink, and we know here God is uh, speaking to kings. And remember, it's a proverb. So obviously he's not talking about physical kings, but spiritual kings. 
and he's speaking to believers, and he says it's not for kings to drink wine or strong drink. It's not for believers to drink physical alcohol, nor spiritual, uh, which, which would be other kinds of gospels. And then in verse 5, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment. And that's the word translated as cause in Psalm 9 verse 4. And pervert the cause of any of the afflicted. And then in verse 6, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty. And remember his misery no more. Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. So here the um, drinking and perverting the cause of the afflicted would relate to those in the churches and congregations that develop another kind of a gospel. And God says to his people, uh, no, you open your mouth for the dumb. And the dumb is someone who can't speak. The dumb would be uh, someone unsaved, someone uh, perhaps so uh, who who's been saved but doesn't have any growth in spiritual things as yet. Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. So the Lord is speaking to his people. Share the word of God. Share the truth of the word of God. For the dumb that have been appointed to destruction in the day of salvation. And uh, this is pleading the cause of the poor and needy. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.